morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And welcome to our first ever two-part episode about a horror icon that we love. Yay! Yeah! (laughs) So guys, Abby and I have been tirelessly researching this topic for over a month now, and finally we are here and ready to share all of our findings about the myth, the man, the legend, Vincent Price. Yay! Yay! (laughs) Most of our research comes from Vincent Price's autobiography, I Like What I Know, uh, Vincent Price's book about pets called The Book of Joe, and mostly Vincent Price, A Daughter's Biography by Victoria Price. Mm -hmm. So, Abby, when did you first realize that you loved Vincent Price? Um, I was really little, and my dad bought me a VHS copy of The Great Mouse Detective. Yeah. And, of course, Vincent Price plays the voice of Radigan, mm-hmm. the villain in the movie, and he scared the crap out of me. Yeah, he's very scary in that. Yeah, he really is. Um, But I loved it. Like, I used to watch it. I would watch it multiple times a day. I was obsessed. And then... Um, when I was a little bit older, we talked about it in previous episodes, I saw uh, House of Wax with my older sister. Right, yeah. And I fell in love with him because he was so handsome and so dapper. Um, and even though he is, you know, he mostly plays like villains and stuff in horror movies. Right, yeah. He is just so charming and there is no one like him. So There really isn't. And Um, while reading these books, especially a daughter's biography, um, a lot of people have said that, uh, there really was nobody else, especially in Hollywood, nobody else like Vincent Price. So Mm -hmm. he was one in a million, which is really cool. He really was. Um, I think that was the first time I first, uh, had known about him was the great mouse detective. Um, (laughs) and then of course I saw house on haunted hill house of wax like Mm -hmm. those were the ones that like got me started and i will never forget when i was younger my mom told me that um he scared her when she saw a pit in the pendulum oh yeah well he is freaking really scary in that movie he's very scary in that and she told me like when she was a kid like she hated him because he was so scary oh no (laughs) i feel so bad for her But he was, he's an amazing actor, and what everyone hopefully maybe will find out was that there was a lot more to him than just his acting career. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's get started. Sit back, relax, grab a nice hot cup of coffee, and let's talk about one of our favorite horror movie icons. So Vincent Leonard Price Jr., was the youngest of four children. Uh, He was born in St. Louis, Missouri on May 27th, 1911. Uh, Here's a fun fact. Horror icon Christopher Lee was born exactly 10 years later on the same day. Wow, that's wild. I know. I thought that was kind of neat. Oh, my gosh. Um, I found that online. I was just looking around and I saw that and I thought, whoa, that's kind of cool. They were also very similar in height as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't even think of that. super tall. That's nuts. So the fact that Vincent Price was from Missouri also blew my mind. Mm-hmm. I, for years, I mean, I literally years, I thought he was an English actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was born in the heart of America, Missouri, which I thought was really neat. Yeah. Uh, 
his American ancestry actually goes back very far as well. According to his father, that they're apparently descendants of Peregrine White, the first known English baby born to the pilgrims on the Mayflower in 1620. What a great name. Peregrine White. It sounds like a Harry Potter name. It does. (laughs) Oh, my God. This actually has never been proven, though. Oh. I know. Sorry to burst your bubble. (laughs) (laughs) It might have been one of those tales that the family has passed down from generation to generation that are either just like flat out lies or like (laughs) born (laughs) because they do that. Yeah. Flat out lies or it's born from maybe some truth, but Mm -hmm. uh, maybe their family were descendants on the Mayflower, uh, but maybe not exactly Peregrine White. Mm, Yeah. Uh, I think it's fair to say that Vincent Price was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, as the saying goes. Yeah. His family was quite well off, and this was due to his paternal grandfather, uh, Vincent Clarence Price, who invented Dr. Price's baking powder, the first cream of tartar-based baking powder, and that secured the Price's family fortune for years and years to come. Mm-hmm. But that's not to say that Vincent's father was not a self-made man in his own right. Uh, Vincent's father's name was Vincent Leonard Price Sr. Uh, He was president of the National Candy Company in St. Louis, Missouri. Which is so crazy to me. That, like, blew me away when I found that out because I was like, what? You're a horror icon and you're, like, a candy tycoon? (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. That fits Perfectly, though. It like, really I immediately does. just think of, like, Willy Wonka or something. Yeah. <laughs> Which could yes. arguably be a very serious horror film. Could you imagine what that movie would have been like if Vincent Price replaced Gene Wilder? Oh, my God. It would have been so good. It should have <gasps> been a horror movie. Like, no, it should have. Absolutely. Uh, so this earned Vincent Price the playful nickname, The Candy Kid. Because of his father's success in the candy business. Mm. I don't know if I would have liked that nickname. I don't think I would have either. <laughs> candy kid? I mean, it makes you... I don't know. It's it's it, awkward. It does sound awkward. <laughs> it does. Again, it goes back to Willy Wonka. It just sounds yeah. like that. So it's clear that Vincent Price came from a very successful family of self-made businessmen. Mm-hmm. But it would be clear that Vincent Price's tastes would not be in the business, but in travel, romance, and art. He would grow to be a more sensitive man compared to his father and his grandfather. He said, I was obviously not going to follow my father's footsteps, my father had made a success in a business, which I, I learned that he later hated. But the pattern at home was like father, like son. And while I was extremely like him personality wise, he wasn't about to admit it. That's also what I love about him is, <clears throat> ooh, excuse me, he went against the grain of, you know, what his family had in mind for him. Yeah. And he wasn't afraid to, like, go, like, full bore and pursue his dreams and just, you know, say, screw it, basically. Not really, like, have that attitude, but wanted to live his life so fully that everything that he was interested in, like, had a place in his life. And he wasn't going to, you know, follow in his family's footsteps if it didn't make him happy. You're absolutely right. And it's so admirable to see that, especially 
someone growing up in that time period as well. He was such a rebel. He was a really. huge rebel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think his parents, uh, even though none of what he had done in his life was expected of him, his parents were very supportive. Mm-hmm. So they could have easily like just snuffed him out, like made him do what they wanted him to do. Uh, but I think it also helped that he was the youngest and he wasn't the <laughs> only boy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can relate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But it's so true, right? Yeah. It's, it's sort of like he was the last child, but he wasn't the only boy. Uh, even though he was his father's namesake, I think his parents were a little bit more lenient with his oh, life choices. Oh, for sure. Parents are always more... <clears throat> oh my gosh, excuse me. They're always more lenient with the youngest. And also, being the youngest has its advantages because <laughs> you kind of watch what your older siblings do and you're like, yes. okay, I know not to do that thing. Or like this is how I get away with something. <laughs> so Vincent was probably an expert with that kind of oh, stuff. Oh, <laughs> I'm sure he was. I'm sure he was. Uh, so his mother was Marguerite Cobb. And her, she was interesting. Reading about her was kind of cool. Uh, Vincent describes his mother in his book, I Like What I Know, saying, good women can be dull, but she wasn't. She was fun for her children and fortunate for her husband. Mm. so you know it was really nice of him to say that uh his mom really liked art but she didn't know anything about it she just knew that she liked it and that it made her happy and this piqued vincent's interest because he also knew that he liked things you know the same things that she did but he wanted to know why he did Mm. so he wanted to know the mechanics behind why he liked certain art and and why this was something that you know intrigued him yeah the first real piece of art that vincent purchased was two nude models one standing by rembrandt the my god (laughs) yeah (laughs) i'm gonna let you know how old he was in a minute the price was 37 dollars and 50 cents like in that time period and all of it was Vincent's own hard-earned money. Like, whether it was, you know, he had earned it through, like, little jobs that he did or, like, he had he had saved it up from, like, you know, oh, his yeah. allowance. I, yep, I remember reading about that. Yes. Um, he was 12 years old. Yes. <laughs> Get it, Vincent. Freaking bought a Rembrandt at 12. Like, that's amazing. Oh, my God. Um, this purchase of real art... Like, you know, like not just printed art, but like a real piece of art by a a real well-known artist uh, inspired him to go to Europe by himself at 16. So now Vincent's parents were very kind people, but also extremely particular about their children's futures. And it's well known that they didn't really like change. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think this, you know, you know, Vincent... uh, because he was the youngest, I think they're a little bit more lenient towards yeah, stuff. Absolutely. Uh, for generations, they had all been Yale men. So when one of his sisters didn't marry a Yale man, it was a small crisis in the family. <laughs> and uh, oh years and years of leniency, suddenly there was more pressure on Vincent to work towards going to Yale. Mm, mm-hmm. More than usual in his life. His family was also very much into music, and one of his sisters was a very skilled pianist. Uh, 
And because of this, like all of the children were supposed to be skilled in some sort of musical instrument. Mm. Uh, They had furniture and art and rugs that didn't match like anything at all. Like they had like no theme in their home. It was just a mix match of like different types of countries and time periods. That's so cool. I know. It's so interesting. Um, They also had like random golf trophies like scattered across the house. It was like a weird eccentric thing that his dad was like, like golf. He didn't play golf, but he had all these. No, I'm sure he did. But like he had them just like everywhere. (laughs) Like Michael has like the Dundies, I guess is what I'm thinking. (laughs) Like from the office. Yeah. So he just like displayed like all these different golf trophies like in his home. And nothing matched. Like, they were just super eccentric when it came to that kind of stuff. That's bananas. It is a little bananas. Oh, my God. Uh, So going back to when uh, Vincent was 16, he told his parents, look, I really want to go to Europe and learn more about art and meet my favorite art piece, uh, Andrea del Sarto's Madonna del Arpe. Uh, And they were really disappointed in him. In Vincent's book, I Like What I Know, he said that his family understood music and understood food, but when it came to the visual arts, they may have liked certain things, but because they didn't know why, he felt like his family was blind to the fact that he wanted to go overseas and learn more about it, Mm. especially as a teenager. Yeah. But I think because he was the youngest, and I think, (laughs) you know, he had a special place in his parents' heart, uh, they let him go. They yeah. they supported him and didn't stop him uh, to go to Europe. Um, Vincent bought his boat ticket, and his mother warned him of women under bushes. What? what? That's what she said. Beware <laughs> of women under bushes um, while you're in Europe. I don't know. Uh, what? <laughs> Can one of our, like, European listeners chime in about this? Is this, like, a thing but, like, his Still. mom was American, though. I know. So why was she taught? Maybe someone from who's older than us, maybe they can let us know what that means, women yeah. under bushes. That's so strange. I'm just strange. imagining a creepy woman under a bush, like, waiting <laughs> hey. for him. Hey, Vincent. <laughs> I've been waiting for you. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> so anyway, he had to look out for that. Oh, no. It reminds know. me of the cat man that lives in Russia. Have you ever seen that? No. He's a man. Is it a cat man or a rat man? I don't remember. But he thinks that he is like a rat and he crawls around on his belly. And the only pictures that exist of him are of him like peeking up from under things. (laughs) Look it up. It's so creepy. Oh, my God. Yeah. Guys, look it up with me and we'll cry together. (laughs) It's going to be awful. Maybe that's what Mrs. Price was actually warning him about. Beware of Gatman <laughs> slash Bushwomen. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. Yeah. So Vincent said that he looked back on that time and he thinks his parents were letting him go because they knew that he would see sights that they would never see. Mm. That's pretty sad, yeah. I think. You know, I and I think a lot of parents do feel that way about their kids. Like, um... You know, they want to encourage you to go do something that maybe they didn't have the opportunity to do mm-hmm. or like the opportunity has passed them. Right. So I think, yeah, he was, you know, he was very lucky to have his parents. They were strict, but, you know, they seemed to know him pretty well. Yeah. 
So before he left, his mother told him that she had been reading about thought transference and that whenever he felt homesick to try and speak to her telepathically and that she would do the same. That's so precious. Doesn't that just make your heart bleed? (laughs) Yes. Oh, my God. I thought that was a pretty fun piece of information. Yeah. She seems pretty progressive. Yeah. She seemed like... Well, I mean, his whole family was, I think. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. In certain aspects, but that's so cute. Yeah, that was super cute. I thought that was kind of neat. So while in Europe, Vincent, at 16, had his first girlfriend. And he described her as a toothy southern girl... (laughs) Who was the only one he knew there who was close to his age. Oh. And it was also his first sexual experience. Out of all the places he visited, uh, which included Italy, Amsterdam, Germany, Switzerland, and England, he hated Paris, France. That was his least favorite stop on the tour. Hmm. He felt that he was too young to party and too hungry to savor French cuisine. Although he can did, relate. Yes. <laughs> Although he did enjoy the Louvre. His, oh, yeah. Well. Right. Because he loved art. But right. That's about it. That's <laughs> all he liked while he was there. Uh, his favorite place was Florence, Italy, which I thought was kind of neat because my sister had just gone there for a month. Oh, and yeah. she said it was just delightful. Like, it was so good. Uh. Um, and there was so much art. And there's so many famous art pieces there still to this day. So I can definitely see why he would enjoy that trip. Mm -hmm. Um, He called it the highlight of his trip. Uh, Vincent felt so at home in Italy that even though he didn't know a lick of Italian, he spoke German because in that moment, he didn't want to be an American tourist, but a fellow Ah. European at least to them. Okay, clever. I know. (laughs) Right? Clever. Yeah. While in Florence, Vincent knew that this was his opportunity to meet his favorite painting, the Madonna of the Harpies. So Vincent made his way to the Uffizi Gallery, and there, standing before him, was his own personal Madonna. Vincent said that there have only been three things that have made him cry for beauty's sake and for art's sake. John Gielgud's performance of Hamlet, Kirsty Flagstad's Isolde, and the Madonna of the Harpies. Yeah, and he um, said also in his autobiography, um, and there I was, standing in the Uffizi with a watermelon in my throat and two painful jets of warm salt water spurting out of my eyes. At that moment, the whole world could have walked into that gallery and I wouldn't have been able to cover up. Then I heard a soft voice over my shoulder say, Come over here. I'll show you the one that makes me cry. I blew my nose, blotted my eyes, buried as much of my face as I could in my handkerchief, and blurted out a feeble, Sorry, something in my eye. The voice said, Yes, beauty. I love that. I know. And that's when I like what I know. Yeah. So when Vincent returned to America from his trip in Europe, he still had another year before he had to go to Yale. Now, during this time, inspired by his trip to Europe, he decided to become an artist himself. And that year, he learned a fact that he admits took him five years to accept that he was not a good painter. Oh. I know. His greatest humiliation was a portrait that he had done of his mother. Oh. 
which his mother refused to take down. Oh, my God. Vincent said that it would have been a mercy to burn the painting. <laughs> wow. He, Don't be so hard on yourself. He thought it was awful. Oh, my gosh. Um, but what he did learn from his lack of talent was appreciation. When you try to do something you can't, you gain a healthy respect for it and for the people who create it. Yeah. You become more receptive of others and more tolerant of their talents because you know your own limitations. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was really neat of him. Yeah, that's a really great way to look at it. Absolutely. So from then on, Vincent said that he was an amateur in the most truthful form of the word, a lover. (laughs) Vincent looked forward to his four-year journey to becoming a man in Yale. His father disapproved of the new term at the time, which was Yale boys and Harvard boys, <laughs> and said to Vincent, when I was there, we were Yale men. Mm. And Vincent knew exactly what he meant and would never be considered a boy while at Yale. The attitude was so prevalent in America to be forever young and wasted all of way, and Vincent was not going to do that. Mm-hmm. Vincent studied art history at Yale, but he admitted that it wasn't a very artistic school. Vincent joined the Yale Glee Club because he loved to sing and to make friends, of course, so it was the perfect place to do both. But Vincent had two secret ambitions, to be an artist or to be an actor. The acting ambition, I think most people have that sort of inside of us to Mm -hmm. be famous, uh, you know, to win an Oscar or whatever. Right. Uh, But the desire boiled up when Vincent took a Shakespeare class, particularly when he studied The Tempest with Professor Young. Uh, He said it was not until Mr. Young came to The Tempest that he allowed himself to impart to us the spirit of Shakespeare and not just the word. He took flight in the beauty of that play and took me right with him. He showed me a brave new world, one that I knew I must try to be a part of, but I also knew that it would take me time to find out how to enter it. Vincent scraped through his first three years at Yale. Uh, His grades were not good. See, this is like the kind of stuff that I love hearing about him, though, because it makes me feel better like about my time in school and like when I entered my early 20s because he stuffed it so full of so many things because he just wanted to learn and experience everything. So I like I love that. And I love that his grades weren't perfect because nobody is perfect, you know? Right. Nobody can be good at everything. Exactly. So the first three years, Vincent was what his father was afraid of, the Yale boy, because of the grades. Uh, It wasn't until his senior year that Vincent felt like he was taking the classes that he finally wanted to learn and take. And like, I remember that even in college, too. Oh, yeah. Like, I didn't really take any classes that I really cared about until my senior year. And so it's good to know that it was kind of like that all those years ago as well. Um, He said, I scraped through those first Yale years grade-wise and assumed the dignity of a junior with a pack of fun behind me, but still no purpose up ahead. That year proved a revealing and exciting one. I took my first formal art course, creative art that is, and when I saw what I could do to make a charcoal drawing of a plaster cast look like a child's rendition of Frankenstein's monster, (laughs) I gave up then and there. Scheme number one to be an artist was out. 
Scheme number two, the actor plan, I had the good sense not to bring out into the public view. <laughs> Poor Vincent. No, don't you just want to hug him? Oh, yeah. We've all been there. We have all, all been there. Absolutely. Oh, poor guy. <laughs> His last year was academically and culturally rewarding. And when he graduated, he knew he wanted to actively be involved in the arts, but he just wasn't sure how. Yeah. So for a year after he graduated, he taught English, saying, My year of teaching taught me that whatever I was going to do or be, I had to know more. Mm-hmm. Oh, fun fact, he taught at Riverdale on the Hudson. Vincent Price Sr. gave Vincent a check for $1,100 as a belated graduation gift. Wow. I know, that's great. (laughs) Yeah. With that money, Vincent took off to where he felt he could stretch the money. He went to the Courtauld Institute at the University of London, where they offered a superb volume of art history classes. And, you know... He missed Europe, I think, too. Yeah. And I, I think he really felt at home there, and that's why he went. Yeah, absolutely. While in London, Vincent met a tremendous amount of interesting people who were adventurers <laughs> and those who were living in the arts community. Um, have you ever seen the show Penny Dreadful? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the main uh, guy is in that, like, adventurer's club. Oh, yeah. So that's the type of people that he was meeting, and he oh was able to, yeah, go to those meetings and go to people's houses where those you know people were hanging out. That's so cool. Yeah, he was also able to have tea with Bram Stoker's wife, Florence. Yes, I read that a little while ago, and I was like, what? That was, that's pretty fantastic. That's amazing, opinion. yeah. Yes. In the winter of 1934, Vincent spent Christmas in Austria with a friend of a friend and traveled throughout Germany. He wrote to his parents from his hotel room in Germany saying how he didn't think Hitler was that bad of a guy. Oh, God. (laughs) And understood why he would be angry at what was happening to Germany. Oh, dear. (laughs) Whoops. He's probably like, oh. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. We'll get into that more later. (laughs) On returning to London after the holidays, Vincent's flatmate told him that a local theater company was about to put on a very controversial American play called Chicago. Hmm. Vincent auditioned just for the hell of it and got the role as a gumshoe detective and a judge. At the time the play was being put on, England had not quite been introduced to the phenomenon of chewing gum. <laughs> let alone knowing how to talk and walk and chew at the same time. That's so funny that was actually an issue uh vincent had to teach his fellow cast members how to chew gum wow yes vincent felt right at home on the stage and with the other actors immediately he called actors people who were full of spirit and life and just so grand oh mm-hmm. there are no people so much fun as theater people my how they do work and what experiences they have on tour Mm -hmm. and being an actor myself i completely like like fell into that i was like yes like there is nobody like theater people no definitely not they are the best and the weirdest and the most phenomenal people out there it's absolutely true the next year vincent would audition for and then star in victoria regina put on by the gate theater company 
Vincent was an unknown American actor, but he had an uncanny resemblance towards Prince Albert, and according to the director, Norman Marshall, he had the most convincing German accent of all who had auditioned. It was all that time he spent in Italy pretending to be German. (laughs) (laughs) He's an imposter. But many people were unhappy with Vincent being cast, and so the director had to take some liberties with Vincent's backstory, calling him a well-known English actor who performed mostly in Germany. So that's why no one had heard of him. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) In uh, a daughter's biography, there she uh, talks about some of the articles that she's discovered where the director is saying this to, like, official people. Oh, my God. During production, Vincent translated all of his lines into German and then learned it in German so that he would think, just like Albert Albert would, uh, in German while translating it in English in his head. Wow. That's commitment. That is commitment. But I have to say, as a German student in high school, it's once you kind of like get on a roll, it's hard not to think or speak in German. So that's kind of an ingenious idea on his part. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So, holy cow. Reviews of the opening night were all received well, and Vincent was immediately shot into theater stardom in England. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) Yeah, it was at this time that Vincent decided to drop out of school and pursue his career in theater. Yeah, why the heck not? Absolutely. (laughs) Honestly. After a few auditions, he was cast in the production of Twelfth Night and then a production of As You Like It. However, once the newspaper started printing that Vincent was an American, word spread and he was denied a work permit. Oh, no. It was suggested that his salary could be donated to charity, uh, but this was to no avail. So he said, well, okay, I'll volunteer to be in these shows. But, you know, they didn't want him to do it. Uh, either it was a work permit, paid or unpaid, like he couldn't work at all. Oh, no. I know. So to Vincent's great dismay, the theater company had to let him go. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. How heartbreaking was that for him? Oh, my God. Yeah. But as luck would have it for Vincent, Victoria Regina was set to play on Broadway, and Lawrence Houseman, the writer of Victoria Regina, would not sell the rights unless Vincent Price was allowed to play Albert again. Oh. Mm -hmm. Wow, that worked out. This secured Vincent in the role, and it gave him the chance to play opposite uh, across renowned Broadway actress Helen Hayes. Traveling with the other steerage passengers and his anxious cat, which he named Albert the Good, (laughs) tucked under his arm, Vincent finally arrived in New York. What he didn't know was that the director of the Broadway production, George Miller, who had thought that Vincent was a wealthy, well-established actor, <laughs> like everyone else did. Right, yeah. He invited the press to come meet Vincent at the dock and welcome the first-class passenger home. Well, instead, they got a lanky 24-year-old with a disheveled cat under his arm. <laughs> Story of my life. Yes. Uh, Victoria <laughs> Regina was set to hit on Broadway. Uh, Just as it was in London, uh, Vincent Price and Helen Hayes hit it off just nicely, and their chemistry on stage was flawless. Vincent was so successful that his father received letters and calls daily from people looking to find ways to use Vincent and his family. Wow. He was also invited to Joan Crawford's home for a potluck. What? 
wow. Yeah, that she was hosting. <laughs> and uh, he even got considered to play Ashley Wilkes, uh, which ended up turning out to be Leslie Howard's character in Gone with the Wind. So he had a lot of different opportunities just thrown at him while wow. being in this show on Broadway. Yeah, that's awesome. But soon to follow was a seed of doubt for Vincent. He heard whispers from professionals saying that because he was so successful so quickly and at such a young age, the public would soon get tired of him and he wouldn't last in the acting world for more than four or five years. That's so crazy. That, you know, but it it makes a lot of sense, you know. He would be like Icarus, right? He's like going towards the sun too quickly with wax wings. Yeah. Helen Hayes even warned Vincent of becoming too successful too soon. He started to have waves of self-doubt and self-loathing, questioning his choice to quit graduate school, fearing he'd die a lonely alcoholic like (laughs) most washed up actors do, I guess. Oh, no. It took him a long, long while to make the decision to make the effort to not become what everyone predicted he would become. Yeah. He made a pact with himself and refused to fade into obscurity after Victoria Regina. He took acting lessons where he had fellow classmates that ended up becoming very famous actors like uh, Burgess Meredith from the Rocky movie. Oh, wow. Yeah. And when he was not working on Victoria Regina, he was just going to art museums and he was brushing up on his art history. He also kept himself busy by dating a lot of sometimes multiple girls at the same time oh my i mean vincent he's a young he's a young hot guy you're right (laughs) (laughs) he's a lady killer yes (laughs) after Mm -hmm. two years of playing albert in victoria regina the play ended and was to go on tour nationally but without vincent he had decided to reject the offer to travel with the show This sudden lack of a steady job made Vincent fearful, but Helen Hayes reassured him that it was for the best to let the character he had long been identified with go, and to now make his name as a well-rounded actor. And this made Vincent feel good about his choice to leave Albert behind. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's always tough. Like, I know you could probably have more input about this because you're more familiar with acting, but when you put so much into a character and then you have to let them go it's like that's like your baby so it is a big deal it's like having a friend that um you're never gonna see again yeah it's really sad so vincent moved to maine to play opposite the famous actress edith barrett in the play parnell At this time, Vincent was only 26, and Edith was in her 30s, though for years she claimed to be 10 years younger than what she really was. Okay, yeah, I didn't know that she was older than him. She was much older. Wow. They hit it off splendidly, and when they weren't rehearsing their roles, they took time to swim and have dinner almost every day. Wow. I know, isn't that cute? That is cute. At the start, they were just friends, but clearly it was becoming something more than that. However, their relationship would have to be put on hold because Edith left for a previously planned extensive trip to Europe. So she was sort of his summer romance, and then she had to take off. Bye. Bye. (laughs) With Edith away, Vincent returned to Broadway, and he did a show called The Lady Has a Heart. The play was a disastrous flop. (laughs) And Vincent experienced failure 
for the first time in his then short career. Oh, no. It received a ton of negative reviews from the New York theater critics. I was going to say, I don't think I have heard of this, and that's probably why. There you go. (laughs) I was like, oh, wow. Mm, That's great. Mm, It stunk. (laughs) After the lady has a heart ended, Vincent was asked by none other than Orson Welles to join his new theater company, the Mercury Theater, in January 1938. Because he had already made a name for himself, Orson Welles gave him a leading actor's salary of $70 a week. Hmm. Welles believed in Vincent, so this gave Vincent his confidence back in his art as an actor. It also helped that their fathers were very old friends. Wow. That's kind of neat. Yeah. Welles, his company was like a huge success the company brought back the classics while making them accessible to a contemporary audience which is so important in the theater world Mm -hmm. vincent felt he belonged with the young brash actors within the company making a new set of theater friends it wasn't long before vincent as well as the other actors in the company though felt the strain with working with orson wells who was a pretty big personality yeah many members quit while others dealt with their misery (laughs) yeah vincent claimed that orson was a genius and was you know pleased at the opportunity to work with him but he also felt that he wasn't creating the art that he wanted he was creating something that orson wanted so it's kind of like working with stanley kubrick (laughs) yeah that's a great connection yeah Vincent was starting to feel like there was something much more to life than acting with the Mercury Theater and possibly with the New York stage in general, but he wasn't sure what. So in his own words, he waited for the spirit to enter him. Vincent was known to be outwardly confident, but inwardly doubtful of himself and his work. He was beginning to feel separated from the others at the Mercury Theater as well as his other friends. And he was possibly sexually frustrated as well. He contacted an on-again, off-again girlfriend uh, whose name was actress. She was an actress, Barbara O'Neill, asking if they really did love each other and if they could make it work and make it work permanently. There's no record of her response to this. Wow. Oh, that's the worst. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. Vincent would not be waiting for very long. Edith Barrett, his friend and leading lady, two years prior in Maine, joined him at the Mercury Theater. Vincent began pursuing Edith almost instantly, and the two rekindled the summer romance they shared two years ago, this time with a great deal more seriousness. (laughs) Here's the thing, though. Like, obviously, we both love Vincent, like, a whole, whole lot. But do you think that he was kind of a jerk when it came to relationship stuff? I think that he was, he wasn't very confident in himself. So I think he tried to find his confidence in dating women. Um, Because he's very flirtatious with like, even like if you watch clips of him on like the game shows and stuff that we saw and um, like some behind the scenes interviews with some of his co-stars and everything, he is so flirtatious. He's very touchy flirty. He is. He's, Mm -hmm. I don't know if I would have been comfortable with that, to be honest. 
no. I don't. Especially knowing that he was in a serious relationship with people. And it's yeah. like, you know. Yeah. And I don't know, like, what, like, culturally, like, it now it's like a no-no and like I would be like don't touch me kind of thing Mm -hmm. I don't know about then though like what culturally was like like socially acceptable right you know what I mean like I don't know if women like did not really like that or I don't know if they were just like oh it's just how it is you know right or if they if it's like an act kind of thing Mm -hmm. you know like I don't know because actors are so interesting. Actors are very touchy feely with each other because yes, we have yeah. to be in that safe place with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we're not gonna like molest anybody, but like, <laughs> I mean, I would that's hope that's bad. <laughs> but like, there is a there is a sense of like closeness with other actors that um, I don't think actors with non actors can like express. Right? Do you think it has more to do with? Um, I guess, like, him being artistic and, like, believing in romantic love so much that he shared it with everybody. I mean, that's a possibility. Um, He was definitely... He's very warm. Very warm and gentle guy. mm -hmm. He definitely was a romantic, um, especially with his love of art and, you know, so I... I can see that. Yeah. But that that also doesn't like justify no, yeah. anything either. <laughs> right. Yeah. So uh yeah, that's a kind of a touchy subject. That's a really interesting one that you brought up. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of mm. cool. Mm. I do think that there was a sense of 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 he had a lack of confidence that yeah. I think he might was he might have been trying to find some sort of connection with uh humans or you know, in his relationships, mm-hmm. uh, and to feel good about like who he was. I think Edith was that for him. I think that she, uh, really attached herself to him. And I think yeah. that they both, I mean, as we'll learn about Edith in a minute, I, they were both going through some pretty difficult emotional problems. Mm-hmm. And I think that they connected on that level and I think they can understand each other on that level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see that. Vincent would send Edith poems and flowers, and he would take her to museums. He idolized her acting. Edith, at the time, still claimed to be in her 20s, even though records show that she was, at the time, 34. You lie. Why are you always lying? (laughs) She knew... Yep. Yeah. She knew she had no time to waste. And if she was going to find a lover, get married, and have children, this was her moment. <laughs> no time to lose. <laughs> no time to lose. It's, oh, dear. Yep. Well, if it's going to be anyone, it might as well be Vincent. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> so there was something off about Edith, though. She had a strange unsteadiness about her. This was known since her younger years. Uh, But instead of growing out of it, she grew into it. Yikes. Yes, it is kind of scary. Mm -hmm. And as actor Roddy McDowell once said, she seemed like she was somebody out of the attic. That's the creepiest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. Her severe mental instabilities didn't affect Vincent at first. He felt like it was just a part of her creative genius. Oh. Yeah. Well, I guess when you're that up close to it's like hidden in plain sight absolutely 
On Saturday, April 23rd, 1938, Vincent Price married Edith Barrett in a large church ceremony on the Fifth Avenue in New York City. Vincent and Edith did one more show with the Mercury Theater, but by the summer of 1938, Vincent had his sights on Hollywood. He and his new bride flew to California at the beginning of June that year. 30 days later, Vincent had a movie contract with Universal Studios. It's just that easy. Wow. (laughs) The contract rescued Vincent from B-movie productions. Oh, God. (gasps) That wouldn't last. (laughs) As well as only placing him in films directed by current best of the best directors. Vincent immediately took to Los Angeles and enjoyed the consistent warm weather and the beach. I mean, after living in the Midwest and then the East Coast for so long, I don't blame him. Yeah, I know. I hear you. In August 1938, Universal Green lit Vincent's first picture, the dramedy Service Deluxe, with Vincent as the leading man and Constance Bennett as the leading lady. <laughs> Vincent's hair was receding. So, <laughs> period. <laughs> Vincent's hair was receding, period. Oh, no. He actually had to have two hair pieces for the film to make him look young, and he said he looked, quote, very purdy, unquote. <laughs> he it must be a Midwestern thing. It must be. Because didn't he call, he was talking about taking his son to the amusement park and he called the roller coaster the roly coaster. He sure did. Yeah. It's cute. It is cute. <laughs> he also had to shave his signature small mustache, which oh. he had even back then, uh, so that the makeup crew could paste on an even bigger mustache. <laughs> Oh, my God. Yep. Vincent felt he looked very silly, but that didn't stop his performance. He always gave it his all. And when Universal saw the dailies, they knew that they had invested in a future Hollywood star. So early on, we talked about how Vincent didn't necessarily disagree with Hitler's ideals. Oh, boy. Yep. But Vincent's uh, anti-Semitism was finally shattered as he grew to learn more about and become friends with and work with Jewish professionals. And eventually, he joined the Jewish Anti-Defamation League. I didn't even know that he was an anti-Semist. So another thing that Vincent got involved in was a lot of Hollywood parties and banquets in town. He was able to mix and mingle with other actors, such as Basil Rathbone and Mary Pickford. What the heck? What the even heck? Yep, those were his friends. Just banquets with people like that. Yep, it was all a dream come true, obviously. Oh my god. So once Service Deluxe was released, it didn't receive the reviews and views that Vincent had hoped for, and he felt that he had been gypped. It was the fake mustache. <laughs> you made me shave it off. <laughs> I can imagine he was pretty upset about it. Oh, yeah. I mean, he leaves his career in New York as a Broadway actor to come to Hollywood thinking that it was all going to be like fine and dandy. And then his film is a complete. Also, have you you must have seen photos of Vincent without his mustache. He looks weird. He does look I don't weird. like it. I don't either. It's like seeing your dad without facial hair, and you're like, who are you? <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I, I, my, yeah. Yeah. It's frightening. It I have, frightening. when I was younger, I couldn't, I didn't recognize my dad. I when, didn't either. Like, my dad has pictures. shaved his mustache off once, and I'm pretty sure I cried. <laughs> dad you're 
Oh, no. So Vincent realized that all he had done was play like frivolous romantic leads and wished to play more dramatic roles once again. So uh, he thought, maybe I should just go back to Broadway. Hmm. In mid-November 1938, he and Edith moved back to New York City, where Vincent starred in the play Outward Bound, which was a huge success and was taken to D.C. to be performed in front of Theodore and Eleanor Roosevelt. Wow. While Vincent was premiering in another hit on Broadway and traveling back and forth to California for movie role tests, Edith was struggling to find roles in New York City, which were few and far between for a woman at her age. Hmm. That's sad. And she wasn't even that old. I know. But then it would have been like, oh, kind of thing. So, Well, and the other thing I don't understand is that everyone back in that time period looked way younger than they were anyway. So it's like you see pictures of her. She looks she looks younger than him. Like it's crazy. That's bananas. I know. Good Lord. In 1939, Vincent starred in the film Tower of London, loosely based on Shakespeare's Richard III. The film starred Basil Rathbone as Richard and Boris Karloff as an inventive character, invented character called Mord. Mord? Mord. (laughs) Vincent played Richard's ill-fated brother, the Duke of Clarence. The film was made during Universal's ongoing horror cycle. The film saw the beginning of Vincent's career in horror movies, as well as his working friendship with Basil and Boris. Very soon after, after, he had a bit role in James Whale's film, Green Hell, which I personally have never seen. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think I have either. Yeah, he, well, and this is probably why. He plays a character who dies very early on (laughs) from a poisoned arrow. Oh, what? Yep. (laughs) And unfortunately, after its release, it was known as one of the worst pictures ever made. Now I have to see it. Well, right? Oh, my God. Vincent Vincent himself later said, about five of the worst pictures ever made were all in that one picture. my god hilarious nonetheless it is known that he was proud to have been in one of the most laughable movies ever made and began looking at all of his pictures with a sense of humor that's great oh my god now in 1933 universal came out with the film the invisible man which starred claude rains it was a huge success and universal all these years later wanted to bank on the story again by creating a sequel the invisible man returns Starring Vincent Price in the title role this time. Shooting began in October of 1939, and after a few directors were considered, they finally went with German director Joe May, who was difficult to work with because he didn't speak English very well. At one point, Vincent said along the lines of, For God's sake, Joe, just speak to me in German. Oh my God. Because Vincent's character was mostly invisible, it gave him the chance to showcase his soon-to-be recognizable voice. His velvet voice. His velvet voice. Although that didn't sound very velvety of me. (laughs) His velvet voice. (laughs) Vincent later recalled that it was the only movie premiere that he truly enjoyed. Oh, Vincent's last film under contract with Universal was The House of the Seven Gables. The film opened in 1940. 
It was a huge hit. And Vincent's place in Hollywood was officially solidified as his movie career was on the rise. Was that based on a book? The House of Seven Gables definitely was. Okay. I don't know who wrote it, though. Tell us in the comments when you listen to this episode, everyone. The only reason why I know that is because I saw it in an antique shop in Vermont, and now I'm mad that I didn't buy the copy of it. Well, that stinks. What the heck? Hmm. Hmm. After his contract with Universal ended, Vincent began a seven-year contract with Fox Pictures and made his first film with them, which was called Brigham Young. Where Vince, <laughs> that's what it says, Brigham Young. Mm. Where Vincent played Joseph Smith. Oh! The founder of Mormonism. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. During this time, it was also discovered that Vincent would be... dun da 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 a dad. Uh, Edith and Vincent were overjoyed, but Vincent was also worried. <laughs> they were. They were overjoyed, but Vincent was also worried about having another mouth to feed and considered taking on more stage roles and setting, sending Edith away to live with his family <laughs> in St. Louis during her pregnancy. Oh, my God. I think so she wouldn't be alone. Oh, okay. But Vincent's parents, unfortunately, were aging poorly, and his father had severe arthritis, so Edith had to stay in California while Vincent traveled the USA performing in multiple plays and writing a play called Poet's Corner to earn... So did Edith not have any family? Mm, Her family, from what I remember reading in the books, uh, they they weren't around. They, yeah, she actually connected with his parents very well. Like, when they met her and, and she met them, like, they connected, like, right away. And I think mm. she kind of felt like they were her new parents. Well, I wonder if that contributed to her mental health. Probably, actually. Oh, that's so sad. It is sad. Poor Edith. So Vincent was traveling the U.S. in different plays, and he wrote a play called Poet's Corner, Uh, And this was all to earn money for his wife and unborn child. On August 30th, 1940, Vincent and Edith welcomed their son, Vincent Barrett Price, known by his middle name, Barrett, to friends and family. He would be Vincent's first, but Edith's only son. For a few years at least, Vincent and Edith bathed in the fantasy of family life and they had that they had started together. Although Vincent would have preferred to spend more time with Edith and their new son, Vincent was called away to work again, this time on a film called Hudson's Bay, which ultimately did poorly as a film, but well for Vincent since most of the reviews called him out as the best example of acting in a film. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. However, after Hudson Bay wrapped, Vincent had a dry spell in his acting career. Four months with no work on stage or on film and a wife and new baby to feed. It got to be so overwhelming that Vincent went to the, to the desert alone for four days to sort of like wow re, re, rekindle maybe his creativeness. I don't know. Was but there peyote involved? Maybe. <laughs> Doesn't say, but uh, Hmm. I'm not going to rule it out. Hmm. Well, hmm. (laughs) when he returned, it was he was in better spirits and decided to fire his agent and get a new one. There was peyote involved. (laughs) Comes back, you're fired. (laughs) He hoped that by getting a new agent, this would help boost his chances of finding work. Unfortunately, it would be another four months before any opportunities would arise. If anything, this was time for him to 
tend to his garden, spend time with his wife and son, learn to cook, and fly to St. Louis to visit his parents and paint. There you go. But he still changed agents again. This time, (laughs) it was his third agent in almost a year. Oh, no. He was desperate to find movie work. Unexpectedly, in the winter of 1941, Broadway called again and Vincent had to leave his wife Edith and son Barrett behind for another few weeks to star in the thriller play called Angel Street. Edith had the opportunity to play the leading lady, but she turned it down and stayed behind. And we're not Hmm. quite sure why she did. The play was an absolute hit, and during its success on Broadway, it was eventually made twice into a film. Both of the films were named Gaslight, which is a great film. The play was so popular that it ran all the way into the summer of 1942, and Vincent became best friends with the cast of Porgy and Bess, which was playing across the street that summer. Oh my gosh. Vincent was particularly fond of the goat that was featured in the play, (gasps) and he would feed it during the intermission during Angel Street. That's so cute. I know. Oh my god. Vincent left Angel Street soon after the summer because he did not get along well with the actress who played opposite of him. She even wrote a strange letter to him saying how he made it difficult to work with him and that he did not respect her or her work. Well, Well, bye. (laughs) Vincent moved on to radio work where he put his now recognizable voice to good use. He was ideal, not only because of his voice, but because he was able to learn his lines quickly. When doing radio, stars are given very little rehearsal time. Sometimes unfinished scripts are given to you and you have to sort of improv and they're sometimes forced to work in a fast-paced, like, cramped condition. Yeah. Uh, but Vincent loved radio because it was the best of both worlds. It was like theater and film. Mm-hmm. Vincent also did many relief benefits at the time. One of them was a Chinese relief benefit where he and Danny Kay and some other actors dressed in drag and did a kick line on the stage. That's awesome. Uh- Amazing. I would have paid a lot of money to Me see that. Me too. Me freaking too. That would have been such a good time. So he was doing benefits for, I'm assuming, like areas affected by World War II. Possibly. Because I think uh, when he started with Angel Street, it was right, it was the same year as the destruction of Pearl Harbor. Yeah. So that probably had something to do with it. Yeah. So we also always talk about how, like, horror is relevant to social things going on in the world. Yeah. Which is really, really funny because his character in Angel Street was so um, eerie. And his height, like, added to the ferocity of it because he played, like, a psychopath in the movie. Yes. So... I think a lot of people connected with that just because of what was going on with World War II and everyone was so tense and on edge that I think that that helped really, like, catapult him. Oh, absolutely. Like, and I feel, I want to say that it was, like, really what sparked his love of being the villain because of the attention that he got from it and because it was so unlike him that it was, like, a suit that he could put on and then take off and... Absolutely. It must have gave him such a thrill to be a villain during that time period because everyone was already sort of tense. Yeah. That's awesome, Abby. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) 
After a full year in New York City, Vincent returned to his family and his film work in Los Angeles. It was not known at the time, but Vincent and his wife, Edith, had actually been separated. Vincent was not happy with the separation, and he blamed it on himself for traveling and staying too much in New York City. Aww. Yeah, so at the time, no one knew. After Vincent returned to Hollywood for good, he starred in a number of films right away, including The Song of Bernadette, which won four Academy Awards, The Eve of St. Mark, which was a war film, Wilson, another Academy Award-winning film, The Keys of the Kingdom, a film about Scottish missionaries in China, A Royal Scandal, and one of my personal favorites, Laura. That was one of his favorites, too. Yeah, a beautiful film noir, and the film that Vincent thought was the best one he had ever been in. During this time, Vincent Price and fellow actor and art lover George McCready opened the Little Gallery in 1943 in Beverly Hills. Oh. Yeah, the gallery consisted of many of Vincent and McCready's personal collection because over the years and during his many trips to Europe and New York, Vincent was buying uh, real art. And he was oh, yeah. collecting it. Yeah, yeah. The little gallery became a very popular hangout spot and was the beginning of them like getting a lot of attention from modern artists. Uh, Vincent received a letter from a particular artist asking if his paintings could be displayed in the little gallery. And the artist that contacted him was none other than the author, Henry Miller, who wrote such erotic classics as Tropic of Cancer and Tropic of Capricorn. Oh my god, that is awesome. Yes, he dabbled in in art. uh, And Vincent thought, well, I don't know if your stuff will work here, but I'm going to pass you on to somebody else. And he did. Henry Miller ended up getting his art in a different gallery. uh, So he kind of helped like boost henry miller's art career if you haven't read tropic of capricorn and tropic of, of cancer like it's wild it's I have a not. wild I, ride i know the premise but i <laughs> it is a wild I have not ride indulged yes <laughs> but soon uh, vincent realized that he and mccready couldn't run a gallery plus have established movie careers so when the landlord raised their rent they decided that it was time to call it quits and they had to shut down the gallery oh Soon after the dismantle of the little gallery, Vincent starred as the villain Nicholas Van Ryn in the gothic drama Dragonwick, which I love. <laughs> I love that. I love gothic drama so much. Mm-hmm. Strangely enough, Vincent had to fight for the role for the villainous drug-addicted millionaire. <laughs> he doesn't give off that vibe. What is he addicted to? In that is it cocaine? Oh, maybe heroin, actually. What? I think so. I have was that obviously that was a thing back then because because wasn't sherlock holmes addicted to heroin no well, he was addicted to uh opium opium that's what no but that's what it is it's okay opium. it's opium yeah, yeah. okay <laughs> heroin the stu- <laughs> I was like i didn't think that was a thing that until was the 80s sorry i obviously know nothing about drugs yeah good which is a good thing i'm not i'm okay with that Uh, So the studio could only see Vincent as the good-natured guy that he had played in Laura, and he had to insist that he was not that type. It wasn't until he lost some weight and auditioned for the role successfully that studios were like, okay, fine, you can be this character. (laughs) Dragon Wick was a huge success, and Vincent was commended for his 
diverse acting abilities as the villain Nicholas Van Wren. Afterwards, Vincent starred in another film called Moss Rose, The Web, The Long Night, and another film called Up in Central Park. Then at the beginning of 1947, Vincent Price discovered that he had a fan club. <gasps> the first of many. Oh, yeah, that's kind of fun. That is fun. This was also a time when Vincent's marriage was becoming rocky again. Yeah. Vincent admitted to a columnist that he and Edith had separated a few, a few years ago during his time on Angel Street, uh, but that they were together again. However, it currently was still not working out. Edith was finding that as her husband's career was growing and hers was dwindling, she became resentful. She started to use what little money they had to help combat her loneliness by renting limousines to take her everywhere. <sighs> I mean, look, lady. Ay, ay, ay. Yeah. When Vincent confronted her about it, she said that she had inherited some money and wanted to use it for herself. <laughs> Which I guess is fine, but... Inherited money from who? Yeah, that's the thing. (laughs) How accurate is this? From me and my bank account? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But it was the beginning of the end when Edith told Vincent that she never liked being an actress. That's... Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Which was one of the reasons why Vincent loved her. And she began drinking more and her behavior became increasingly odd. She began to fall apart, and Vincent couldn't support a woman who he felt had dropped everything just to drink, paint in a dark room, and spend money on unnecessary materials. I mean, but she kind of sounds like me, so... (laughs) Um, I think you're describing me, thanks. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Here's the thing, though, Abby. You actually work hard. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) And I don't take fancy limousines everywhere I go. No. Trust me, I would if I could. Right. I'm sure we all would. I would. (laughs) Yeah, heck yeah. (laughs) Oh my god. What he did want was a family, and he didn't mind being the only provider, but he felt that Edith was not willing to work in the same universe as he was. Oh, Edith. I know. Then in October of 1946, Vincent's mother, Marguerite, died quite suddenly it was only six months earlier that she and vincent senior came to visit their son in california oh my god so he had seen her six months before she passed vincent apparently had fallen apart at the news he began to seriously rethink his life he flew out to st louis in april 1947 to help his father sell the house He dressed casually and, according to one of his cousins, seemed to have a no-care attitude. He had even decided to take his cousin to her high school dance, because why not? Oh, that's precious. Yes, it is. This would actually be, though, the last time he would visit his childhood home. Uh, Because his father would now live in Tucson, Arizona for the rest of his life, where Vincent Jr. could easily care for him during his painful arthritis. And Vincent Sr., his dad, could take care of his son during his failing marriage to Edith. In December of 1947, Vincent and Edith had once again separated, but this time it was for good. A few days before Christmas, Edith took seven-year-old Barrett out of his bed, packed his clothes and toys, and moved themselves into one of her friend's houses. I know. Uh, Leaving Vincent alone with the two dogs, a puppy named Panda, and its mother, Goldie. 
So Vincent recalled that Christmas left when his son Barrett left the house. Oh, that's so sad. It is sad. Uh, There seemed like no reason for him to celebrate if he was just going to be alone. However, Edith did promise to bring Barrett over for a little while on Christmas Day. So Vincent, very excited about it, dressed a tree and hung uh, Barrett's little stocking over the fireplace. Oh, just one lonely little stocking. (laughs) (laughs) It just breaks your heart. I know. He was also glad to have the dogs with him, of course, because at least he wasn't that alone during Christmas time. And he was also super excited because he knew that uh, Barrett would be excited to see his dogs again once he returned. Uh, But things went from bad to worse. (laughs) On Christmas Eve, Vincent left both dogs out of the house uh, like normal and he sat down and had a few beers, and I guess he was super buzzed. I know. It's the holidays. The holidays. They'll make you do it. They will, especially if you're alone. <laughs> um, so Vincent let the dogs out, and after a while, he had heard like a screeching noise, and he immediately jumped out of his chair and ran outside, and he found a woman who just kept saying, like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, and... He was like, what are you sorry about? And she, he looked down. You're not sorry yet. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) I mean, yeah, because he he, is pretty sinister, you know. I know. He looked down and he saw that Goldie, the female dog, that she had been hit by the woman's car and that her legs were broken. So after Vincent cursed out the lady with the car, he <laughs> he picked up Goldie and he brought her to the vet. Uh, this is all in Christmas Eve. Uh, after I know after he brought Goldie to the vet, he called Edith and her friends to let her know like this is what happened. And, you know, just so she because it was her dog, too, I guess. So uh, so after he had called, he thought, OK, well, where's Panda, the puppy? So he uh, got a shot of whiskey, <laughs> and <laughs> yep, he just took whiskey, and Rightfully I guess so. Yep, and he began searching for uh, the puppy Panda. He called Panda's name a few times and searched around the property and around the road, and finally he saw Panda's uh, little tail poking out of a bush. So he was like, "Okay." He yanked the tail gently to let him know that he was there, uh, but Panda did not move. Pan- I can't. I know. It's so sad. It is so sad. Um, Panda had been hit by the car, and he had died a hundred feet away from the scene. Mm. Vincent recalled that he had cried heavily for an hour. No, oh my God. While he buried Panda. I can't because you know what it makes me think of when I was 15 we had to put our dog down, oh. and my dad had to tell me and he cried. Oh. No. It was awful. It was so sad. Now, I don't, like, I, when your dad cries. I know, it's the worst. It's the worst thing. It is. It's so sad. Ever. Yes, ever. And I, like, and even in in Book of Joe, where the story comes from, uh, Vincent says it, it hurts so much. I know. To cry. And 
he just cried for an hour while he buried that poor little dog and mm. he said the next the next jerk to wish me Merry Christmas was going to get the most unchristian cold shoulder for free. <laughs> it, oh. it just seemed like the whole world had been sinking around him. <sighs> so the next day was Christmas Day. Barrett did arrive and Vincent told him what had happened and he didn't seem as upset as he thought he what was. What a little going jerk. <laughs> Seriously. Vincent's probably like really are you a serial killer in the making (laughs) poor guy barrett i'm sure is a very nice man he i yeah yeah you're right (laughs) he probably is um i think he was just a kid and he was like okay dad like it's just a dog (laughs) oh no so uh vincent was like okay well here you take goldie then (laughs) so he basically gave goldie uh to edith and and barrett And so Vincent decided to get his own dog. So a few days later, he went to the pet store and he got a dog that would prove to be one of his most loyal friends until the dog passed. Uh, The dog's name was Joe, which if you love dogs, you have to read the book of Joe, uh, where the story comes from. It's a very special book. (laughs) About 10 days later, on New Year's Eve, Vincent was invited to a party and the hostess suggested that he ask the English costume designer, Mary Grant, to the party. Vincent recalled working with her while filming up in Central Park and remembered how much he liked her professionally. She really knew how to dress an actor because actors, as some of us may know, like to move. Yeah. On stage, like to actually like, like to be comfortable. They like to, you know, block and do what they need to do. Uh, and she understood that, which I guess a lot of costume designers, that was like a big deal. Like they didn't do a lot of that. But she made sure that costumes were easy to work with and easy to move in. And Mary said that she remembered Vincent because he was so kind to her, unlike many actors during that time, I guess. Oh, my God. Yeah. So they had a great time at the party and apparently were inseparable. So it wouldn't be long before Vincent was picking himself back up again and diving back into his work and film and in radio, and he was most notable for doing a show on radio called The Saint, which he did for about four years. At the end of each episode, Vincent addressed the audience as himself to help promote a variety of causes. In one particular episode, the Colorblind Killer episode, Vincent said in a prejudice-filled America, no one is secure. Refuse to listen to or talk negatively about any race or religion. Let's judge our neighbors by the characters of their lives alone and not on the basis of their religion or origin. And this was basically uh, Vincent Price coming out as like a liberal actor in Hollywood. That's so awesome. It is awesome of him, yeah. Uh, In June of 1948, Vincent called his father in Arizona, only to learn that his father had taken a turn for the worst. So Vincent immediately flew out to AZ to visit his father and stayed by his side until he gently passed away. With both of his parents gone and his divorce with Edith finalized, Vincent was ready to start over. So Vincent sat on the board for the Los Angeles County Art Museum as well as the Board of Arts for UCLA while he dated the very nice costume designer, Mary Grant. (laughs) The at 37 years old, Vincent was well past his younger years 
Uh, so he took his time to enjoy himself with his work. And he said about Mary, the next time I love someone, it's going to be for keeps. Oh. Yeah. So happily, when Vincent introduced Barrett to Mary, they got along swell. With his son's confirmation, Vincent felt more relaxed with his relationship with Mary. One day, Vincent and Mary, Vincent and Mary, and a mutual friend, Perry, <laughs> Vincent, Mary, and Perry, going off on a vacation. They went to San Diego. <laughs> oh, and then they went to Mexico. Yay! That's a party. Yeah. Uh, one thing led to another, and on August twenty eighth, nineteen forty nine, Vincent and Mary decided to get married with their friend Perry as their witness in Mexico. Wait, so was Perry like a chaperone? No, I think he was just like a a, a friend. Oh, okay. He was like the I third was like, wheel. Oh, okay, okay. Cuz I'm like they aren't married, but it is still a conservative time, so wouldn't it be hilarious? Oh my god. <laughs> yes. But no. <laughs> I'm just here to make sure you're staying in separate rooms. <laughs> Oh, man. Oh, no. Oh, my God. Awkward. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. So, anyway. Vince- <laughs> God. Vincent and Mary's spontaneous Mexican marriage would last them 24 years. Dang. Yeah. So, the 1950s would prove to be a turning point in Vincent's personal life and professional life. Yeah, and... Actually, in 1951, he lectured at East Los Angeles College, um, and he was there to talk about the importance of the arts and how they impact society. Um, And he became a huge influence on, like, art museum attendance, and he loved the impact that he left on people in that way, just because the arts were so important to him. Um, so he donated 90 pieces of art to the college. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And the college was actually a largely, um, Latino student body. So he, I think he kind of saw that as a really good opportunity to reach out to them and, you know, like really welcome them in that way in the art community. That's so cool. Yeah. So, um, he donated that and then he also donated the money to support the exhibit. So like it was set for a really long time, which was awesome. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, good for him. Yeah. So Mary, uh, during this time, uh, she and Vincent were together as a married couple, and they were discovering that they could really be each other's creative partner. Mary brought a structure and a groundness to Vincent's life that he didn't have at all with Edith. She was brutally honest and to the point and was legitimately interested in Vincent's life. And she helped establish his notable career, like, during the 50s and 60s and even early 70s. Nice. And for the first time, Vincent was with someone whose curiosity in the art world matched his own. hmm During this time, Vincent starred in a number of really goofy films. And they, they were. Uh, there was Champagne for Caesar, The Baron of Arizona, <laughs> Curtain Call at Cactus Creek. Yeehaw. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> His Kind of Woman, The Adventures of Captain Fabian, and The Las Vegas Story. Vincent would later say that he had accepted these film roles so that he could have the money to travel more with his family. Vincent couldn't deny that film roles would always pay for the life that he wanted outside of acting. One week in 1952, Vincent was offered two roles at the same time. One was for a lead in a new Broadway play, 
and the other was for a film. Knowing that the film would pay more, Vincent took the film. The Broadway play he ended up turning down was a comedy called We're No Angels, and it turned out to be a hit, and it soon turned into a film starring Humphrey Bogart. But uh, in my opinion, I think Vincent got, you know, the long end of the stick. Yeah. He chose a film that would send his entire career in a direction he never could have imagined. The film was... House of Wax. House of Wax, yes. <laughs> you guys, thank you so much for listening to part one. Uh, we're going to be back next week on Halloween with the final part, part two, of Vincent Price, his life, and his films. So you guys have a great last week of October. Yeah. And have a wonderful Halloween. We'll see you that day. Take yeah. it easy. Bye.